What is going on in your customer's brain more than anything else? What what is the one thing they desire above any other motivation? We're going to answer that important question on today's episode of The Buyer's Mind. Welcome to The Buyer's Mind, where we take a closer look deep inside your customer's decision-making mechanism to reverse engineer the perfect sales presentation. Now, please welcome your host, Jeff Shore. Greetings, everyone. Welcome once again to The Buyer's Mind. I am Jeff Shore, your host, the podcast where we dive deep to understand what is going on inside the brain of our customers, what motivates them. And to join us always by our show producer, Paul Murphy. And and Murph, just a quick question. What do you think is happening in, in the buyer's brain? What is their number one motivation? Well, I, I think the number one motivation is to get a screaming deal. That's what I think. <laughs> uh, yes, answer like somebody who's been hanging around <laughs> salespeople too much. I get that. I understand that. Anything else? Uh, well, uh, to get out of there as quick as possible, to uh, get back to the game that they were watching uh, on the TV, uh, you know, uh, they just want to get in. And if you're like me, you you uh, you're a hunter. You go in, you shoot it, you kill it, you get out with your deal. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I get that. And I think that that all makes sense. And I think today's guest would agree with you on that, because we're going to get deep into the number one motivation that people have. And we tend to think of motivation as how do I move forward? But if you look at the real fundamentals of motivation, there's just the question of what is the number one job of the brain? And Above everything else, the the brain is there to help us survive, right? I mean, that's just a broad concept here. The brain is there to try and keep us alive, to sort out threats, figure out what's going on. And uh, the fact is that when we think about just surviving, we don't think about surviving, but our brain does, right? So there's this non-conscious part of the brain that is always acting in our minds and the minds of our customer that has kind of that survival, self-protective mode to it. Uh, this is deep stuff, and when we hear from our guest today, you're gonna you're gonna be able to dive in a little deeper. But we've got to ask ourselves the question as we tee up that interview. You know, what do we do with that? And I think it's important first that we understand it, and second that we own it, that we recognize that your customer has a lot of unspoken fear, not only unspoken fear, but to some extent, unknown fear or subconscious fear that they are carrying around with them. If we understand that, and if we own that, then it changes the way we're going to see our customers. So let's talk about the psychology of survival in part one of our conversation with Dr. John Medina. Well, we're thrilled to have back on the podcast, uh, Dr. John Medina. We had such a great time last time talking about his book, Brain Rules, and it was so good. 12 Principles for Surviving and Thriving at Work, Home, and School. We had a really, really good time, and we just love uh, chatting with him. He is actually a developmental molecular biologist. He's the aff affiliate professor of bioengineering at the University of Washington School of Medicine, uh, lives in Seattle, Washington with his wife and two boys. Uh Welcome to the show. Let me just ask you, Professor of Bioengineering, it, it sounds a bit nefarious. <laughs> well, you know, I am I am I'm sometimes called a clipper cloner. I'm a genetic engineer. My uh -huh. I've spent even, a lifetime picking 
Yeah, Michael Crichton uh, is going to feature you in one of his novels here one of these days. Well, you have so. to come back from the dead, but you know, yeah, he's exactly. capable of doing that too. So, yeah. <laughs> the um, what I, best way to, to view my career is simply to say that uh, my research interests are the genetics of psychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. So I spend a long time thinking about how the brain develops in the womb at the level of cell and gene. And then what happens when things screw up years later and you get a a behavior, a, a psychopathology that you can actually measure. And believe it or not, there are bioengineers who are really interested in that topic, and I am one of them. So our department is actually has a hybrid. We have engineers in there. We have biochemists, which uh, I am a part. Uh, there are, so there's a, a behaviorist or two that we consult with. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into academic departments that actually have multiple hybrid uh, disciplines associated with it. So I'm not sure if that clarifies things, but that's sure. what I do for a living. Just on a very practical level, are you do you fall under the category of expert witness at time? I could. I decided not to go down that route, that's for sure, because it can be really distracting. And in terms of psychiatric disorders, um, we know so little about their origins Mm -hmm. that what you end up doing is that you land on, I'm just going to say, within the standard deviations of a behavior. And uh, some of the diagnoses are really, really kind of iffy. I'll give you a really good example. Uh, you may uh, you may know about Alzheimer's disease for sure. sure. It's very famous. Mm-hmm. Do you know that we have no idea what Alzheimer's disease is? In fact, the best way you can think of it is to say Alzheimer's diseases, because there appear to be multiple types, mm-hmm. and we're only in just the beginning stages of understanding what those types are. And until we get what those types are, we're not going to be able to find a cure. So, if I were an expert witness in a court. And, and somebody said, John, this person has Alzheimer's disease. I would look at them and go, no, they don't. We have no idea what Alzheimer's is. So <laughs> maybe there's a, a subtype later on. And that's right. why I've, I've chosen never to get into the courtroom because, you know, I'd last about five seconds. OK, sure, sure. <laughs> and we're, we're going to get in here just a little bit to the, the way people are thinking when they're making purchase decisions. But but even the, what you just said right there, yet. This last week, there was a story that came out about uh, researchers who were saying they might be able now to be able to uh, uh, do blood tests that will tell you whether or not you've got the early signs of uh, Alzheimer's. It may not manifest yet, but it's on the way. Now, I'm not sure that I would want to take that test anyway, but you would look at it and go, how can they do that when we don't really know what it is? Right. And we're in the beginning. This is a really good example of what I was saying. It's very possible that there are certain types of Alzheimer's disease that begin when you're 20, Mm -hmm. but it will take you 50 years for the clock to finally run out that Mm -hmm. you accumulate enough of toxic stuff in your brain that it triggers a behavior that everybody can see. But it's not because you had Alzheimer's disease at 70. You had Alzheimer's disease at 19. Mm -hmm. Now, there are probably other types of dementias that look like Alzheimer's that really don't start until you get the classic Alzheimer's. So Mm -hmm. mid fifties, mid sixties, late sixties, but those are now two separate diseases, aren't they? One of them you would call hyper early Alzheimer's and the other you would call late, late, late onset Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And do they have the same genes? Do they uh, affect the same neural circuits? Jeff, we have no idea. Right, right. So if you're going to say Alzheimer's disease, you at least need to say Alzheimer's diseases to bifurcate it into two. And one of the research projects that you were mentioning really is looking at the earliest stages of Alzheimer's to suggest that in some people, it starts essentially after they graduate from high school. Are you of the opinion that 
we I just had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago uh, the four-time USA memory champion Nelson Dallas. Uh, he's uh, d- does a lot of work in regards to uh, awareness and fundraising to, to try and get that research uh, moving along. Or are, are you of the opinion that you can delay or in some ways circumvent the effects of Alzheimer's if you are creating new neuropathways in your brain? Well. Uh, the answer to there's two questions there. The first one is, can you delay or prevent? Maybe, depending upon the type of disease you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Let's stay with one disease. Let's say the one that most people are afraid of in their mid-50s, mid-60s, and that is the late-onset stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's pretend that is a single disease for a second. Sure. We actually know a number of things that you can do that uh, uh, will either delay or even change the probability of you ever getting the late-onset form of this disorder. But they all have to do with lifestyle changes. It's mm-hmm. not like you can take a pill or take a drug or take a vaccine. Right. Though people are working on those to try and prevent the disorder. For, I'll give you a really good example. Uh, 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 if you do moderate aerobic exercise, 150 minutes in a seven-day period, moderate aerobic here is walking too fast to sing. You can delay, if you do that uh, 150 minutes in a seven-day period every, uh, every week the rest of your life, you can delay the probability of you getting the late form of whatever late-form Alzheimer's should be called. Another one is diet. I call these the usual suspects, Jeff, and you have heard about these because they hit the, the paper all the time, but they are truly the only things that have been shown to uh, reduce the frequency of dementia. Diet, particularly, the Mediterranean diet is the only diet that's ever been shown that actually changes cognitive uh, development, or better to say cognitive erosion in older populations. So if you eat, it's Michael Pollan's great quote, right? Eat food. Uh, mostly plants, not too much. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you get those kinds of things, then you begin to reduce the probabilities of certain types of dementias, including what is often referred to as Alzheimer's. That's it, though, buddy. <laughs> it's it's stuff you've heard about for a long, long time. And the, and, the, and the biggest reason why is that if you get on the bleeding edge of the research, what you see are not definitions. You see probabilities and maybes and drug trials that have literally cost billions of dollars in the case of yeah. trying to uh, prevent a certain type of Alzheimer's disease, all of which have failed. I, I It is uh, such an interesting topic. And by the way, my, my favorite Michael Pollan quote is probably, don't eat anything that your great grandparents would not have recognized, and I think that that probably makes uh, makes a lot of sense there. Right, don't, don't don't eat anything you can't pronounce. Yeah, well, that's a good point too. Yeah, if you're reading the the quote scientific definition. All right, so listen, yeah, there you go. We could talk all day about how much we don't know uh, about the brain. It's a long list, but I want to talk about sure. how much we don't know specifically about uh, our behaviors, right? So, you know, Daniel Kahneman once said that, I'm just paraphrasing here, but the fallacy of man is that he thinks he understands himself. We really, really don't. Do you ascribe to that idea that we are generally not particularly uh, as self-aware as we think we are? Well, we don't even know what the word themselves means. I mean, what does that mean? Oh, no, now we're going to get all meta on us right here. No, I don't mean to. Believe me. Yeah, you can get philosophically philosophical. Yeah. But one of the reasons why we usually go to the philosophical is that we have nothing neurologically to say. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So we're 
stuck with the with the ideas that you learn mostly in language arts classes and nothing yeah. that you learn in neurochemistry classes. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that, but there is that idea that uh, we think that we make logical decisions and r- reality the, the, the decisions we make are, are dominated by the emotional side of our being. In fact, it's probably better to say not even the emotional side. We make decisions based on an assessment of threat and survival, period. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. Everything is seen. This is a Darwinian organ. So everything is seen through the lens of uh, the two Darwinian priorities, which are surviving, surviving and surviving long enough to be able to project your genes to the next generation, which is survival by proxy, if you will, survival once removed. But all the decisions that we make, their genesis does not come from uh, wanting to get ahead in a, uh, in a business. It does not come from wanting to get an A in the class. It comes only because you want to survive. And if you can get an A in the class because it provides a competitive edge and your survival perhaps is increased, those tend to be the big motivations that uh, people work with. If you want to buy something, a motivation to be able to purchase a physical object of some kind, um, it is done mostly because you can almost always see that there are roots of survival that marble through that decision like fat in a rib steak. Uh, let's try and connect these dots here just so we can just go like super practical. Uh, sure. You know, I, I'm at a store. Uh, I see the shirt. I love the shirt. Now, the yeah. shirt's a lot of money, but I really yeah. want the shirt. Come up with a rationalization as to why I should buy that shirt because, after all, my wife just bought a three hundred dollar purse. I'm going to buy the shirt. That sounds like neither threat nor survival to me. Well, everything that you've just said in there is all about threats and survival. All right, connect the dots for us. You're smarter yeah. than we are. Connect the dots. How? Yeah. You, well, you can ask the question: Why do you want the shirt? So, why? T- tell me, Jeff. Why do you want that shirt? Because uh, I think I look good in it. There, I said it. Aha! You just said, I think I look good in it. Yeah. From a Darwinian psychology perspective, you can immediately go to, oh, that increases your mating potential. <laughs> 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 and thus, you're right back to the old evolutionary principles of projecting your genes to the next generation. So if you think okay. you look good, you think you're hot, even if you are fully and happily married and have long since satisfied your pair bonding uh, uh, needs, and has changed nothing about your Darwinian priority. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and if I need hey. a new hockey stick. <laughs> Why do you need a new hockey stick, Jeff? Well, I mean, uh, I'll, 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 won't I play better? If it's not my skill level, it's the stick that's going to make the difference, right? Well, sure. And you just said, if I play better. Play mm-hmm. better? Play better than what? Play better than the uh, goal? Play mm-hmm. better than the glass? Play yeah. better than the ice? Or play better than other players? Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. actually, what you have just said is a form of competition. Mm-hmm. You are actually setting up, oh, if I'm going to play better, I will get in the, in the cold, hard world of the Serengeti. That's a survival thing. Yeah, I can play better because I can bonk you on the head if I need to. Because, mm-hmm. Or I can show you how much more fit I am than you are. Because mm-hmm. I can show you that I'm a better player than you are. And that then also increases your mating potential. And boom, we're right back to Darwin. All right. So we're going to be able to do this within. I, I, I bought a car because uh, you know, it, it shows how well I'm doing in life. And that's going to be impressive to other people. Or I bought sure. a car because, uh, you know, I want to keep my kids safe. And th- then we get into the survival sure. aspect. We'll be able to tie it into anything. It's extraordinarily easy once you see it through their survival instinct. You know, yeah. I hear a lot in business schools that we, we uh, base our purchases on emotional decisions. I consider that nonsense. No, 
we don't base our uh, 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 purchasing decisions on an emotion on an emotional uh, fulcrum. We base it on a survival fulcrum. Even the emotions, the emotions that we feel, are used in service of those two great priorities: surviving and surviving into the next generation. You can distill. I don't mean to be overly simple about this because. Um, I deal with, I've studied for 40 years the most complex organ that exists. And you can right. oversimplification almost always leads to a hazard. But mm-hmm. in terms of its overall priorities, understanding this part of the brain is an extremely easy thing to do. And especially for people that are interested in marketing or figuring out why people purchase things. All they need to do is read Origin of the Species and get most of the things that you could get out of a business school. No kidding. Hmm. Okay, but let's talk about that emotional impulse because when when we're, you know, when, when I'm going to make a purchase decision and I'm I'm looking at it and and, and uh, I I just setting aside and, and let's just assume that uh, our audience agrees on the idea that we can track everything to threat or survival, but when uh-huh. I'm making a purchase decision, it's still going to come down to the idea of this, you know what 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 that is deep in that emotional gut rather than the brain saying well this uh certainly fits my uh physique and i think i'll look good and therefore be more attractive i i mean it's it's not it it's it, i i i'm having a hard time grappling with the idea that you say that there's no room for emotion in this purchase. Oh, no, no, I didn't say there's no room for emotion. It's just emotions are built in in uh, a subservient to the survival instinct. Mm-hmm. We actually use emotions in a very interesting way. Do you know how we view? Well, we're not really sure what an emotion is, but insofar as we know anything about it, do you know how a lot of us view emo- emotional responses to things? We think of them like post-it notes. And here, here's what I mean by that. Uh, when you wake up in the morning, your brain starts to imbibe all kinds of information. And research studies show that your sensory uh, uh, inputs supply to the brain many more pieces of information than the brain can consciously process. Mm -hmm. In fact, a whopping amount, you're looking at stuff at 0.005% of all the information that's supplied just to the eyes actually makes it to the back of the head where you can actually see something. Mm-hmm. So there's an oversupply of information and a bottleneck ability to process it, which means we have to provide a filter. We have to provide a, uh, um, a rubric that says, okay, I'm going to pay attention to this input and not that input because I have a bottleneck and I can't pay attention to everything. So what should I pay attention to? We think we use emotions as a way to put a post-it note on a piece of information to select it for further processing and forget the rest. So if we see a cute puppy and it uh, produces an emotion in us, we might put a post-it note on that puppy so that we can process it further as opposed to a, I don't know, a crescent wrench, which doesn't have the emotional uh, salience of a puppy. And so if we saw a puppy and a, and a, and a crescent wrench, you can show in the laboratory that we're almost always going to go to the thing that provides the emotional salience. But still, it's the emotions that are providing a filter for a survival instinct because there's too much information coming at us. And we have to be able to decide fairly quickly what we're going to pay attention to and what we're not. So the reason I say this, Jeff, is that emotions in their proper context really does do exist as a phenomenon. And all of the stuff that people learn about emotional processing and whatnot uh, in a business school probably still apply. But what's missing is the general overall envelope of why that uh, uh, application exists. We don't feel so we can buy. We feel so we can survive. Love it. 
Love it. All right. So let me throw this at you here. So so here's something that uh, uh, myself as a semi-professional consultant uh, came up with, uh, but I said it really, really with, with just with a lot of emphasis. So it's it, it sounds true. Now okay. we've got you <laughs> to be able to validate whether or not this is just consultant speak. Okay. So, so here's well, a true I, mean, I, I won't be a strong arbiter. I mean, I have a very particular, <laughs> narrow, reductionist point of view. So I know you there, that's, Jeff. But that's why I put myself out there. But, but, but be, be careful with who you're talking to. I mean, <laughs> exactly. I have a very narrow that's, frame. That, that's your way of saying, Jeff. You maybe you're you're about to make yourself look stupid. It won't be the first time. All right. So, <laughs> well, so, I like you. Okay. I don't. I don't want to hurt you. And I, I have clobbered plenty of people that I haven't meant to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. All right. So, so, so let me let me let me throw this. We'll pause at this out there uh true or false emotions act as a sort of glue that turns an experience into a memory uh partially true okay i'll take that (laughs) (laughs) when you mean glue and adhesive you might be saying in my world i'm going to i'm going to uh interpret that as it's more likely to be retrieved later yes that's correct and that's yes. absolutely the case. That's where the partial comes from. Mm-hmm. Because emotions, when you lock down on something, you'll remember it. Uh, you lock down on saber-toothed uh, cats all the time because they're mm-hmm. a potential threat. And sure. you will remember that threat very quickly as a survival instinct. So mm-hmm. emotions do not only act as a, actually a post-it note is a really good metaphor mm-hmm. or analogy because it not only shows you that you need to pay attention to something, it actually sticks to it as well. So yes, something that is more emotionally competent what we call emotionally competent stimuli are almost always remembered better. So yeah, that part's true. Okay, good. Well, score at least a half a point for the consultant. Uh, well, on, at least for the reductionist there, Jeff. Yeah, exactly, like that's said, right. Yeah. Be careful. <laughs> Consider the person you're talking to, buddy. All I right, have a very enough. particular point of view, and it may not be the right one. Well, there you have it. We we cut that off because the conversation was going so very, very well that we're actually going to split this into two episodes. There is much, much more to come in part two. Make sure you stick around for that. It is really, really telling. So, Murph, you know, Dr. John brought up this really interesting idea that emotion uh, serves as something of a post-it note. It it, it uh, uh, the emotion attaches to an experience and then makes it memorable. So when we think back on the experience, that emotion is sort of attached to it. We look back on the experience and we we feel the emotion when we see the experience. Did, did, did that make sense to you, Murph? Yeah. You know, uh, there are often times, uh, you know, I, I don't think of it as post-it notes, but yeah, certain emotions that certainly pop up, uh, but it's a great visual reminder uh, just to think of it as a post-it note that's attached to that uh, experience. Yeah. Well, when you think about any experience that you've ever had, that I've ever had, when we think back on those experiences, it doesn't matter what the experience is, we're probably going to think back on a moment that was popped with emotion. So we think about, you know, a, a trip to Disneyland, or you think about, you know, your wedding day, or or even a really a really serious argument that you had with your significant other. Those were all experiences. And we think back and we, it, it is, it's the, how we feel that really stands out. So even there, Murph, if I asked you about any vacation you've ever taken in your entire life and asked you to think back about a highlight moment of any vacation, I know you were in uh, uh, the United Kingdom recently uh, up to England, Scotland, Ireland. Uh, think about one moment that, that popped out from that trip. 
Well, standing in the Guinness factory uh, was uh, pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. So uh, how, how can you not stand in the foyer there, which is shaped like a Guinness glass, uh, seven stories high? That's pretty impressive. I love it. I love it. And so now you look at it and even the pop in your voice as you were talking about that experience, I think, is really, really telling. And we could do this with all the experiences that we ever go through. And that includes our 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 buying experience. So from the perspective of our customer, they're thinking back on their experiences and they're asking themselves the question, what sticks? Right. What is memorable? And those things that are memorable are those things that are going to have an emotion tied to it. And so often we see in the sales process that salespeople are uh, hesitant to really engage the emotion, right? They get so much into the the facts and the figures and the data and the analysis and the features and all of that stuff that we sort of forget that it's the emotion that's really going to tie in. And I think our job as sales professionals is to elicit the emotions that make those experiences more sticky. So I want to give you permission. If you're a sales professional, I want to give you permission to look at it and say, you. it's all right for you to say to a customer, look at it, this is really cool. Or man, based on what you've told me, I think you're going to love this. And man, is that incredible? Isn't that awesome? Whatever your vernacular is, whatever that looks like, we are sometimes so cautious about getting emotionally involved ourselves. But that's a problem because it's very difficult for our customer to outpace our emotion as a salesperson. This is that concept of emotional transference. So if I'm playing it, playing it cool, playing it low key, well, what's going to happen here is that we're going to have customers who are um, sort of, they're bridling their own emotion, right? They're not really letting their emotion uh, uh, step into all of this because the salesperson doesn't look all that emotional. So I just want to suggest to you that you want your customer to have positive times of emotion, those specific moments that they will look back on because those emotions will work as post-it notes. They will make the experiences memorable, and that's how you stand out. This is the concept of how we break away from everybody else who's just showing the, the standard features. We're going to look at it and say, no, 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 we're going to do this completely differently here. We are going to make sure that we are uh, giving our customer reason and purpose to be able to think back very, very positively to their experience. And that is on you. That is up to you as a salesperson. But when you do that right, you engage the emotion and that's when you change the world. Hey, listen, if you have not subscribed to this podcast, please do so. We sure appreciate that. And if you want uh, notifications on our Saturday morning videos, we put out a Saturday morning video, five minutes. It's called Five Minute Sales Training. Absolutely free. Uh, it'll pop up into your inbox every Saturday morning. Just go to jeffshore.com. Uh, we don't spam you. We're not going to uh, sell the list or something like that. We'll send you a five-minute sales training video every Saturday morning. Pop over to jeffshore.com and sign up for that today. Today.